Igniting well is the pursuit of a lifetime. You may be at mile marker one of this wonderful life journey and thinking for the first time about embracing the life of a writer. Or maybe you're further along and ready to publish some of your ideas. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are fellow travelers on this extended road trip to improve our writing and publish our ideas. We hope this podcast helps you make progress on your writing journey. Now, let's buckle up and write. Let's face it, pitching a publisher or literary agent can be scary because you know it's your gateway to a traditional book deal, which is what many authors want. The cornerstone of your pitch, of course, is a standout book proposal. But for many first-time authors, creating a book proposal is a complete mystery. What do you include? What don't you include? And what are agents and publishers really looking for? In today's episode, we talk with author and book proposal coach and expert, Lisa Tenner, who gives her insider knowledge of what it takes to create a book proposal that catches the eye of a literary agent and publisher. We discuss common pitfalls of proposal writing, the importance of identifying comps to differentiate your idea, and how to identify the right comps. We also address the topic that everyone talks about when it comes to book proposals, your following. Do you really need a following? Lisa says that aside from your book idea, your proposal must prove that you have a following. Tune in to this honest and lively discussion to learn about book proposal best practices. Welcome, Lisa, to our podcast. We are so excited to have you join us today and share your expertise and finding joy in writing and also book proposal development. Thank you for being here. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be with you all. So I want you to start out by telling our audience a little bit about yourself and your joy of writing journal book. Just where did that come from? And why do you think people lack joy when they write? So there's a lot to unpack there. I would say, first of all, in terms of where it came from, that was like a gift from the ethers, I think, because I was working on another book, which now I'm getting close to being ready to publish. And it just came to my consciousness one morning, I woke up with this idea. And I, I think part of it was it was like one of those COVID things. And I think at the time, people felt very isolated. And I think needed to get in touch with all the things that a journal can help us get in touch with creativity or intuition or joy, what makes us happy, and also the things that are challenging and find solutions or just kind of get out of the funk. And so that was really part of the motivation of the Joy of Writing Journal. And I had this friend who I had actually sent a, a bunch of clients to her because she was had this brilliant idea of putting QR codes in books and having video and audio that the reader could just access with a quick scan of their, their cell phone. And I had quite a few clients who I just knew it was a great match for. But suddenly that morning when I woke up, I was like, ooh, this, this would be good for me and, and, and for this book idea. And so I think what the video does and the audio meditations are sometimes a blank page is hard, right? That's where like we might not be feeling the joy. We're feeling pressure or stuck. 
And the videos kind of make it fun. They engage you. Sometimes it's me sharing a writing tip. Sometimes it's a few other writers, famous or not famous or young people, just sharing you know, their response to the prompt, their favorite word or where they love to write. And so, so it's, it's really a way for us to connect with each other and have some fun. And it, it's meant to stir your creativity. Sometimes you might go deep, but it, it's not required. Can you give us an idea of a prompt that got a great response from writers or what is your favorite prompt? I have a, a few, but the ones where I love the video, there's one words we love. And that one was was really fun. Just hearing people say their favorite word and kind of what they do with their bodies when they said their favorite word and how they just lit up. And their whole posture changed. Like some of them would almost do a little dance when they said the word. So that was fun. And another one I love was just your favorite place to write. Because again, people responded in such interesting ways. And I still remember the last person on that video to respond, Shalini Ball, said, dancing under the stars. And she just kept going on and on about kind of the perfect place to write things that bring us joy. I think that was it. But it was just the way people responded that made it so much fun for me. So I don't know if it's my most popular prompt, but it was my favorite responses. I love that. Each episode, Dave and I share a word of the episode and I can identify with that. Ooh, I'm excited about a certain word. You know, I think when you're a writer, you love language. And that's part of the reason why you write is because you love language. And so when you tap into these words that kind of move you or help you communicate in a better way. It, it helps you love writing a little bit more. Is that kind of what the goal of the journal is, is to help you love writing more? That, that's a really good question because I didn't necessarily, like a lot of my, when I work on a book, a lot of times, you know, I'll have a vision and goal. And with this book, it was kind of more just a zeitgeist, I think. And so it wasn't like a particular goal, but I think it was to help people feel the joy that I feel and a lot of my clients and students feel when we're writing and, and access that numinous and luminous place that writing can take us to and journaling can take us to. I wanted to move into this idea of book proposals. And I thought maybe we could begin with what has changed since you started doing book proposals in terms of what you think agents and and publishers really want in a book mm -hmm. proposal this might be kind of a, a sad fact but the biggest thing that they want to see is a big platform they want to see that you're reaching a ton of people and those people are really engaged and those are people who buy books so you could get away with a smaller platform when I first started. And I even had some clients who had a modest platform or didn't have much. And, and we worked on their platform a little and they got six figure book deals. And that's just not going to happen now. You have to have a really significant platform. And, and there are different ways to do it, go about it. And I think almost everyone can find a sweet spot that they're going to enjoy because if it's not fun, you're not going to keep doing it. And you're not usually going to be very successful at it either. So, you know, if you don't like Instagram, don't go there. Find the platform areas that are going to turn you on. But I would say that's like 
the biggest change is how much they're looking for. And social media has become so, so key to many publishers. What is a significant platform? What's a modest platform? I mean, in terms of numbers, I think that's really the mystery. Like what are publishers really looking for as far as size? So everyone asked that question and there's not one answer. So some of it depends on the publisher. A smaller publisher may be very happy with with a more modest platform. It could be just tens of thousands of people on your social media or just a really nice mailing list. It's hard to say because it also depends not just on the publisher, but then also on the particular genre. So for a diet book, it's the bar is going to be so much higher than for maybe a health book for a particular health condition, right? So, so again, it varies so much. And then it varies what your platform is. So if you're a speaker and you're speaking in conferences and in person, you know, not just on Zoom, that tends to convert nicely to book sales. Podcasts, because you have a very targeted audience, tends to convert nicely to book sales. But social media can really vary. Is that an audience that tends to buy? So if you have proof that that audience buys from you, that's going to affect the numbers. So I've asked agents many times, like, what do you, what kind of platform does this person need? It really, it really varies on so many different, different variables. So I can't really give you a number. I can say like, I, I know this was a few years ago, but Reed Tracy of Hay House used to say that somebody with a mailing list, so not social media, but mailing list of 30 to 40,000 people was their sweet spot and usually their minimum, but it, it varied if they had somebody with a big radio show that might compensate. So there, there's no hard and fast rules. We have interviewed some agents on our podcast, maybe a half a dozen, and almost everyone will still say, we're just looking for that really great idea. Now I realize it's the platform, but Do you ever see the eyes light up at an idea, like the book idea, the thesis itself, or the the idea for the book itself? Yes. And then that agent's going to say, what's the platform? And if it's not there, I love this idea. Please do X, Y, Z and come back to me. So ideally, you want to have done the X, Y, Z because you you want to strike while the iron's hot. While that agent or that publisher is really excited about the idea, you don't want to then have to go out and build your platform for another year or more. If you've got a crummy book or a crummy idea, even with a big platform, usually you're not going to get a book deal. Sometimes people do, <laughs> and usually the publisher regrets it. But that platform is so important. So yes, they'll light up about the idea and then they'll say, now go out and build that platform and then I'll work with you. And and I've had that happen. I had a client who just really wanted this agent. It was back when Harvard Medical School had a CME publishing course, continuing medical education. And I was on the faculty and met somebody there who ended up being a wonderful client. And he was just, he just wanted this agent so badly. And she said, you know, go build your platform. I'm interested, but come back to me when you've got the platform. And he was just so insistent. He finally got her to send him a contract, but then he still didn't have the platform there. So he's 
obligated in the contract, but he's got to build the platform. And it took him a few years. So it worked out. She got him a book deal, but that platform's important. How did you work with him on developing that platform? You mentioned earlier that you often or sometimes work with authors on developing a platform. Where do you start when somebody has a very basic platform? Now, I won't go out and like, I'm not an expert in platform in the sense of like, I can help you build your platform from X to Y. It's more helping them with the bigger picture strategy of what's going to work best for them. So part of it is ascertaining what kinds of activities they like to do and what lights them up or what might seem a little scary, but at the same time, somehow kind of matches up with their personality. Like maybe they're really scared of podcasts, but at the same time, there's a curiosity and it seems like they've got abilities there. So advising them to work on that. Sometimes it is just introducing them to someone who can help them with that next step. And sometimes they find the person, you know, and it's somebody I didn't know about or even a strategy that I hadn't seen before or used before. So it's it's not really cookie cutter, but it really comes back to who's your audience? Where do they hang out? Because that's going to be important. And, and what's really going to work for you? So if you really hate social media, I don't think that's going to be a very productive place to be. And better serve you maybe to get live speaking gigs, which is a wonderful way to really reach your people and sell books. You mentioned crummy ideas just don't make it to, to <laughs> publication. And I'm sure that you have a lot of people who come to you wanting help with a book proposal that have crummy ideas. How would you define a crummy idea? Yeah. So first of all, I, I really look to see the value in something when somebody reaches out. So a lot of times it's not really a crummy idea. It's just not well formed yet, or they haven't differentiated. So part of my job is to help them differentiate. And I have a kind of a self-study course that I that when I do a book concept consultation, they get a self-study course and then a questionnaire to fill out and send to me. So I'm prepared before our call and they're prepared. And then we have a two-hour call. And part of that call is definitely giving them an understanding of publishing, giving them support to really hone in, home in on who their audience is or what, what is the best audience to choose based on their goals, based on the market and kind of formulate what the features are of the book, what the content is, what you leave in and what you take out, things like that. But then we also do this exercise I call Meet Your Muse. It's a guided visualization. And I lead you from, let's say, along this path in a meadow and into the woods in your imagination and then into this little building where your muse is waiting. And we'll have had a list of questions we put together for the muse based on our conversation. And then we test are our answers correct, you know, is the muse in agreement, but also does the muse have other ideas? And a lot of times they're really fun, creative ideas that come out of that. Other times the muse says, oh no, you're writing the wrong book. This is rare, but you're writing the wrong book. This is the book. So I love that exercise. It's really fun and really fruitful. And there are ways, I think, to get beyond the, I won't say crummy idea here. I would say the vanilla idea. Well, vanilla actually is a tasty flavor, but the undifferentiated ideas, yeah. right? And to get to something that really is more at the heart of what they have to offer. But what would be a crummy idea? 
when you really haven't thought about the audience, this is for everybody, this book. And or, or if somebody is a real narcissist and just so blown up about their, what they have to offer, then sometimes the book's not going to go very far. And I couldn't necessarily help them if they're, if they're not in reality. Most of the time, I see the value in people's ideas, and it just might need some fine-tuning or some creative brainstorming. You talk about this meadow and this path from the meadow to <laughs> this yeah. building. What are some, of, without giving away your secret sauce, what are like a couple of the questions that you have your writers ask along the way? It's really not a secret sauce. I'm happy to share it. And I would say a lot of it is based on what they've told me where they're struggling. So if they're struggling with feeling confident, we're going to ask the muse about that. If they're not sure who their audience is, we're going to ask the muse about that. Sometimes they might think they know the audience, but I think there might be nuances. And so we'll ask, even though they think they know. And, and it might just confirm. Once I talk to them about the different paths of publishing, we might ask the muse, is indie publishing or self or, or traditional publishing a better path for them? So we'll, we'll base it on what questions they have and also where I think maybe there's something missing. When is it a good idea for a writer to seek an independent publisher, an indie publisher versus a traditional? Where, when do you advise authors, like, this may be a better fit for you? I know you yeah. want a traditional, but an indie publisher might be the right fit. And what is the resistance to indie publishers? So there are a number of times I would suggest an indie publisher off the bat. One is you have this artistic vision, and it's something maybe that a publisher is unlikely to go for. Like you have all these QR codes, like I did 30 QR codes, and they're going to be on your website. Publisher's not going to be so excited about something where they don't have control, right? So you've got this artistic vision, you want to maintain that vision, indie publishing, or you want the book really fast. Indie publishing might be quite, quite a bit faster. You want to make more money per book. You're a speaker and you realize like I'll make less than a dollar per book if I have a traditional book deal and I'll make maybe $8 a book, possibly even more if I sell this book at speaking gigs and I am self-published. So, you know, those are, those are some reasons. And then there are lots of nuanced reasons too, but those are some of the big ones. How do you know when you're working with somebody and it's a good idea, but it's really a good idea for an article or a 10,000 word piece. It's just really not a full book. So, I mean, sometimes that is clear from the get-go. Comes out more as we're looking at the structure and the table of contents and there's just not enough to write about. And sometimes it's like there are so many articles on that online and there are no books and you think, yeah, there's maybe a reason for that. So if you're working on a book proposal, you might be working on the com the comps, the competitive and complementary book section and see, oh, there are no books on this, but there's so many articles. And, and it could be that there's a need for the book, but it may also be that there's just not enough really for a book or people can get enough of what they want through articles that they're just not going to buy a book on that subject. So talk about the comps. So you have an idea for a book and you start to do research and there's a book kind of like yours out there, but maybe it's a little bit older. 
How do you differentiate yourself from books that look pretty similar to yours? One thing is you don't want to you you don't want to say there are no comps out there because publishers actually want to see that there are books that are selling and selling well that are similar to your book in some way. So you want to show both the similarities and the differences like, oh, my book is really similar to these bestsellers in this way. But then, of course, it's important to differentiate. And so the differentiation could be the voice. It could be a slightly different market, like maybe this market is much more niche and it hasn't been as an underserved market. It could be new research that's in your book or applying research from another field to your book that can really help. It could be the features in the book, right? You could have some unusual features and it could be the stories you have to tell that that's kind of related to voice. But so there are lots of ways to differentiate. Also the author, right? The other books are all by moms and this book is by a pediatrician mom that would differentiate. And how many comps do you recommend in a book proposal? Five, six, and Yeah, that's a good question. And I should really know the answer. I think I <laughs> tend to go, guess some of it is just like what that particular book seems to need. But I would say, yeah, five to five to seven, maybe. You don't want to have too many because then it just bogs things down. I would say pick the ones that have sold the best, but also that relate to your book when you're when you're choosing and trying to narrow it down. And you don't want really old books. It used to be there was a time when agents said, don't give me any books that are older than two years because they want to see what's selling now. But that's changed a little because with Amazon, the older books sell really well. It's harder to break in with a new book. So so that's not as clear cut anymore, but still you want to have mostly pretty new books. So I would say the majority should be two years old and, and sooner. Is it still true that with a nonfiction book, you do not have to complete the book? Generally, you have the proposal, you have everything in the proposal. You have a first chapter, a second chapter, maybe that your thesis chapter. Or do agents today really want you to have, even with nonfiction, the entire book completed? For the most part, people will advise you, oh, just write the book proposal. And then you may get some feedback that changes the book. So it's better to wait. And that can often be the case, but there are exceptions. So one is memoir. Often before you sign the, the book deal, they're going to want to see the whole memoir and make sure it really holds together. So it, it's better to have that written. Um, another is the author just knows they don't work that well under pressure and it's better to get the book done. So they're not going to have that pressure if they get a book deal and then they've, you know, nine months or a year to get the book into the hands of the publisher. And another reason to just write the book first is just gut. And I would say most the first book I worked on, which was published by HCI, we had a book deal and from the book proposal, and then we wrote the book. So we only had written the sample chapters and that worked. But since then, I've, I've really enjoyed writing the book first because I don't always know fully what the book is. And a proposal should be very representative of what the book is. So a lot of the people I work with are maybe doctors or therapists. 
they may have a very clear idea of what the book is. So it's pretty easy for them to to have the book match the proposal. But if you think your book's going to change significantly, your book deal, right, your contract is based on the proposal. So if you make changes now, the publisher may say, no, you agreed to do X and suddenly you're in a pickle. So if you write the book first and, and just really discover what it wants to be, or maybe you write two thirds of the book first or three quarters of the book, whatever it takes for you to really know that book and feel pretty solid that it's not going to change significantly. And if I sign a book contract based on what the book is now and what I think the book's going to be, that, that I'll be fine. So those are some of the things to think about. And I did promise to talk about those sample chapters because you mentioned, you know, first and second chapter and then like some ending chapter. And actually what I would advise is write the best chapters. So it might be the chapter that's the most counterintuitive or shocking, right? Or just so fresh, we haven't heard that before, or, or that has the most interesting research, mind-blowing research. Or it might be the one that you just know is your best writing. And if you haven't written the book yet, right, you're writing a prescriptive book and you are figuring out, well, which chapter should I write? Certainly, often the introduction or first chapter can be good because it sets the stage and makes it clear who the audience is and all of that, what they're going to get out of it. So it does a lot of work for you. But you might also say, you know, I'm really excited about chapter eight. I just can't wait to write it. Write that chapter because that passion's going to come through and there's a reason you're feeling excited about it. How long should a writer spend on their book proposal? I know it probably varies from person to person, but how quick is too quick? Like what, what is yeah. a, an average range of time that a person should expect to spend on a book proposal and getting it really up to par to send to a literary agent? So let's assume you have the platform because that's going to be one of the one of the variables in how long it takes and that could make it take a lot longer. But let's say you have that piece. I would say between 2 months and 6 months. Sometimes you do need to wait longer. You know, I had a, a client who was writing a book and she was in the midst of a divorce and so she kind of just disappeared for 2 years. And then came back and she did get a book deal after, you know, once she was ready. But it did affect also both her ability to really jump in and write, write that book and complete it and promote it. But also even what the book was, like it, it, it changed some of her writing, I think. So, you know, sometimes you do need more space to write the book proposal. But I would say generally two months to six months is a good plan. And less than that, you're probably not going to get to the nuances. Sometimes people hire an editor and think, one round of editing and we're good. That's not going to create the best book possible. The same thing with the proposal. And if I'm sending out a proposal for a client and I'm querying an agent that I have a relationship with, it really has to be perfect because it's going to reflect on me if I've left something out or I didn't like do a final proofread of it. Now, if if somebody is going on their own and addressing agents and publishers, there's a little more leeway, right? You're not a professional in the field. And so 
if you have a couple things that don't ring quite right, that the agent is happy often to come in and, and help you fix it if it's not a big fix or make some changes. So it, it's it's not as crucial. But if you're working with a professional, they're probably going to want you to do a number of edits if they're sending it to agents or publishers. What percentage of books that agents like and say, hey, this works, I'm going to send it on. Is there a rough percentage of those that do not make it where the agent goes, you know, I, I tried. I can only speak from my own experience. And most of the agents I work with are willing to go to smaller, you know, midsize or even small publishers if they don't sell at a big house. And it it's extra work for them and they're not going to make much money on that. Usually they might, when you think of the time they put in, but they want to see their clients succeed. So they, you know, they're going to go to the bigger houses first. They're hoping for a bigger advance because that's their livelihood. But if they don't get it, the, the agents I've worked with will usually try for a smaller house. So most of those have gone through, they just go to a smaller house, but occasionally they try and it's just not the right market for that book. And that's usually the case because agents, they're very experienced, but the market's changing. I had one client who had a book and the agent said, you know, I'm just hearing from publishers that the market is glutted right now for relationship books. And the few that liked it, they were that were willing to look at it said, you know, we just signed a book that's too close or so she had a lot of trouble selling and this was a top agent. And then he continued to write for Psychology Today and then acquisitions editor rather from HarperCollins contacted, I'm not sure they contacted him or his agent, but they knew they had seen the other proposal. So they knew he could write well. And they said this other topic that you just wrote this article that went viral on we'd like a book on that so he did get a book deal it just wasn't for the book that he started out with i think another area for platform building is is article writing or if you're a columnist for psychology today or something like that i'm assuming you would say yeah that's correct that can be a a really strong asset for your book proposal if you're writing regularly for some digital, mostly digital publication or some journal of some sort. Yeah. And publishers, they love to see numbers. So if you can say my average article gets 70,000 reads and most of my articles have been essential reads in psychology today. And so they've been in the morning newsletter or whatever, all those kinds of things help. In an acquisitions board meeting, so once an editor is interested, they're going to be pitching it at an acquisitions board meeting with other people from the publishing house. And basically, if they're interested, they're going to be crunching numbers and the sales force can be figuring out how many of these books do we think we can sell based on the author's platform, based on the size of the the market, based on what other books like it have done. So those kinds of things are important as they're crunching numbers too. Any data you can give them is really good. And other sections of the proposal too, data on the markets. Like sometimes people will send me markets for the book and they don't have any numbers in there. There should be a number next to every market you're mentioning. 
there should be numbers in your platform and your your promotion plan. So definitely like get those numbers in there. I was going to ask you what some other missteps are as far as book proposals go. What do people Mm -hmm. not include or what do they include that they shouldn't include? You're talking about they need to include numbers when possible, but what are some things that people just get entirely wrong when they're doing book proposals? One is sometimes tone. Like I often see that they'll be like first person and then it's third person and they go back and forth between the author and me. So you just want to be consistent in your tone, your voice rather. And another common error error is you have this like highfalutin promotion plan. It sounds great, but it's it's pie in the sky. It's not based on a platform you already have. So publishers don't care that, oh, I'm going to get blurbs from all these people. No, unless that person has committed to the blurb, they're really not interested. So you just want to tell them, I have commitments from these people for blurbs or the forward, or even better, here are the blurbs and forward that that these people have written for me already. So the more it's actually grounded in reality and grounded in something you can show the publisher, the better. Can you identify or talk a little bit about what some of that pie in the sky promotion plan looks like? Oh, I'm going to sell books through Staples. They're going to buy 10,000 books, but I have no relationship with Staples. I've never done any training or or I'm going to go after podcasts. I'm going to be a podcast on these top podcasts. And sometimes people don't even say which podcast. Normally you want to say like, how how much you're going to go after podcasts and you know how often you're going to be on them and what you've done in the past and which podcasts you're going to go after but if you say you're going to go after like these huge podcasts and have never been on them and you maybe you've never even done a podcast guesting or you've done a couple and that's it that's not based on reality so Publishers aren't going to take it very seriously. They want to see that you're already doing that. Oh, yeah, you're on a podcast, a few podcasts a month. Yeah, okay, we believe that you're going to be able to get on these podcasts. They might even listen to one. And if it sounds terrible, they might say, oh, yeah, that's not, it doesn't, we don't see that going very far. But if they listen and it sounds really good, okay, this this makes sense. So they're going to do some research too. You're going to have your social media links. You'll have your links to media. And nowadays you have live links in there so they can just click on it and and go check out your website, check out your media page. And you definitely want to have real stuff behind it. Do you recommend at this phase also having an author page, a website, or is a website not necessary if you have a really robust social media platform? A website is almost always necessary. I would say, because also social media, that's like what my friend Rusty Shelton calls rented space. You don't own it. Whereas your website, you have more ownership over that. And so you really want to be getting people back to your website. You want to get their email address because your email address is going to allow you to let them know when the book comes out and let them know when you have events. So it's really important that that you work on getting a mailing list too, because that's that's stronger than just social media on its own. Just dealing with expectations of maybe new authors, 
Mm-hmm. If in fact the idea isn't worthy of a big publishing house, maybe it's a smaller publishing house or even a an indie publish publisher, and to mm-hmm. encourage them, how do you how do you set expectations and manage ex- expectations? If right away I can see like this isn't likely, you know, like let's say it's a self help book that's very generic and it's sort of like live your best life kind of thing. And maybe they're a speaker or they want to be a speaker and and they probably do have some good stories and things that will carry the book. But it's this is just not a book without a huge platform that's going to get any leverage. And, you know, maybe even with a big platform, it might be tough. They'll need to find some uniqueness. But but with somebody like that, I might say, you know, I think in my estimation, this would be hard to get a publisher interested. This is a really competitive arena, but I think this would be a great book to self-publish and here's how you can make it special and unique. So I try to give them some ideas to make their book stand out if I have enough information about what they're trying to do. And so really like point them to their strengths and point them to what they can do so that it's not all just, oh, forget it, but more to get them excited about indie publishing. So often I'll tell them some of the advantages of indie publishing as well. I hear you saying that even if you're going to self-publish or go to an indie publishers, a lot of indie publishers still require a book proposal, right? That if, let's say you're going to self-publish, that you need a book proposal because why? Well, a book proposal is going, it's like a business plan for your book. It's going to help you get that roadmap together so you know you're on track. Like, okay, I'm really clear about my market. I'm clear about where my book fits in the market. It's going to help you later on when you're marketing. So it'll help you with everything from choosing keywords on Amazon to to having that plan of how you're going to get the books into the hands of your readers. So it's it's valuable. Did I do a book proposal for my last book? No, I didn't. But I did do some of the pieces of it. Which pieces? Certainly looked at markets a lot. I also did put together a plan for launching and looked at what platform I have and what I needed to, what I needed to, what I could leverage, but also maybe some pieces I needed to fill in to, to help with that. And because it's a journal, like it's a short book, I didn't have chapter outlines or anything like that. I mean, it's really not chapters. It's organized by 30 days of prompts. So I guess those were the main pieces I I worked on. What's the prevailing emotion that writers have when they get the final go from you, like this is ready to go to a literary agent. What's that emotion? Oh, I think they're really excited. They've been like working so hard and and sometimes it does take longer than they think, or there were some bumps along the road. And then it's like, they're, they're really excited. I think filled with hope and it's 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 an exciting time. And they're probably a little nervous too. This has been such a great interview. We're just so grateful for you joining us today. Really loved everything you had to share with us. Thank you. Well, it's been such a pleasure. I love your questions and it's really fun hanging out. All right, Dave, let's turn to our words of the episode. You go first this week. Okay, so I have a unique word. It's ephemeron. I've never heard of that. 
So the word ephemeron means anything that's short-lived, like an insect that lives only for a day. And for example, in fly fishing, the mayfly, which is one of the primary sources of food for trout. So the mayfly lives under the surface of the river as a nymph for almost 365 days, and then emerges and moves up the water column in a short period of time, really literally hours, and then rises to the surface with its wings. All of a sudden it has wings and then it it flies around, it mates, and then dies often within 24 hours. <laughs> the mayfly is ephemeron. So I got this word in reading Mary Oliver's Upstream, her it's a it's a selected essays. It's a book of selected F essays. And she's writing about Edgar Allan Poe and one of his characters in his short stories. And this character is, I think you would say her name, Eleonora, which almost seems close to what we're talking about. But Eleonora is one of her his characters. And this is the quote. Like the ephemeron, she has been made perfect in loveliness only to die. I love that. That comes from Edgar <laughs> Allan Poe. <laughs> one of but the it, greats. You can see why he is one of the greats. All right. My word is lissom, L-I-S-S-O-M. And it relates to a person or a body that is thin, supple, and graceful. So I guess I would say that I'm not lissom. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> but a ballerina would be lissom. So it's it's a it's a great word. I can imagine it being used in a novel to describe a person. So it's a good word. All right. Well, that is a wrap for this episode. I am Melissa Parks, and I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write. 